Last week we finished up through the um, the tenth chapter of Leviticus, and what we'll do tonight is to finish Leviticus and might get through quite a bit in, in Numbers too because of the tight material that we're in. We've read the material here that uh, the deep issues of the morality of the law of Moses, uh, the reason for the law of Moses, and the significant events and all, we've already covered. And in Leviticus that uh, we have this uh, dealing with the Levitical priesthood and the various things involved in their worship to God and also some things involved that separated the Jews as a people. Now, there's some interesting things uh, within it. There's a few things that I don't fully, I just have, don't feel fully comfortable with. And, uh, and that's just, I'm still doing research and all on that myself. There are those aspects that are absolutely unique to Moses and show an insight and an understanding that goes beyond all the other cultures there and shows an information basis that uh, uh, couldn't come from the other culture or anything like that, that would still be scientifically accurate in all today. But then there are some things, in other words, that once you get past the Ten Commandments and get past the sacrificial system, uh, then there are some things that definitely uh, they were a theocracy and definitely showed the influence from the culture that they were in. In other words, that uh, their regulations concerning uh, uh, slaves, uh, the certain even of the dietary things, the principle of eating clean and unclean meat. And didn't remember you go back to Noah, even out of the ark. You know he had clean and unclean animals. And when God told him to gather up two of the clean and seven of the unclean, or vice versa, it was two of the unclean, seven of the clean. Uh, Noah knew what that was, so obviously this is passed on down. Well, in all religions of antiquity, without exception that I've read about, that they all have this concept of clean and unclean animals. And so it's, uh, and there were certain animals, and although there are some differences, there's, there's more similarities than there were differences. And there are certain animals that have been avoided. For example, as a general rule, Animals that are carnivorous have been avoided and looked on as unclean. Uh, animals that uh, uh, would eat dead animals, the carcass and all, have been looked on as unclean. And the same is true with the birds, like you deal with the kite and the eagle and things like that. Animals that, that the birds that were, would uh, be carnivorous or would live off uh, the dead uh, were to be avoided and all. And so by all these religions having that, to my mind, would be evidence of a central source initially. And then they spread out and, of course, uh, perverted it maybe in various ways, but kept the essence. Now, when I look at what Moses gives along that line, I see so much that is scientifically accurate. And then I see some things that are just arbitrarily there. And so the indication to my mind is that Moses is pretty well, on some of this, is pretty well following the course of that particular day. Uh, you know, and uh, I think we see it in, in several different things where they, they you know, for example, that uh, if you go back and look at the code of Hammurabi that uh, predates Moses by a couple hundred years, you will see a lot of similarities between it and Moses, you know, that, and, and you can, so that Moses has taken a body of information and he is definitely putting it down. And so in many ways, Moses is like Luke. And when Luke tells you at the beginning that many have set in hand, and he's working as a historian that pulls it all together. On the one hand, Moses has the Ten Commands that have come directly from God, and the other information and all. On the other hand, there's all this his, these historical records. And just like we noted when we did Genesis, that he definitely was given to Moses in tablets. And he has copied from these tablets, you know, going back to the very beginning. It even identifies the ownership of the tablet itself. And then there's other materials that he has access to here. And so that you can see this type of thing. And there is some things that, that, uh, that at least based on what I know now, that you, uh, 
could not find any scientific basis for one over the other. You want to be very meticulous on, on every little detail. And so that's an area I'm still studying. In other words, that some of that, uh, maybe just a little bit of corruption that has come into the material itself. In other words, just like the, with the New Testament manuscripts, we have certain uh, verses, like when we, remember when we studied the manuscripts and we came to the conclusion that the manuscripts are 99.5% perfect. Uh, but that means that there's one half of 1% that's interpolation within the manuscripts. And there are some verses there that, that, you know, that we can pinpoint the time when they were actually added and things like that. And they don't affect the text in any way. They don't affect any doctrine or anything like that. But it, it, is, it is there. In the same way, this has been passed down through the centuries, and it's been handled and copied by the scribes and all. And so I believe personally that some of that is, you know, interpolations, uh, and you see the influence and all in the, of, the, of the society and the, uh, that they were in and when this happens. You know, in other words, they actually thought, this is an interesting thing, anytime there's been an interpolation, the motive of the scribe has been honorable. I don't know a single time where anybody could point to a New Testament passage that we know is an interpolation and say that there's anything but honorable uh, purposes on the intent of the scribe. In other words, he honestly thought he was improving your understanding by adding that point. And what he added generally was a truth. It's just that he, for example, when the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized in Acts 8th chapter. And then in Acts 8.37, before he's baptized, he, uh, he asked him to confess his belief in Jesus. Well, when you read from any of the new translations, you won't find Acts 8.37 because it's not in the oldest manuscripts. And I don't believe it's there. You know, he went along, he was taught, and he just simply baptized him. But it was the practice to confess with your mouth before you were baptized. And you can even document that in the very first creeds of the church, you know, they, that, that was the practice that they adhered to, is that confession of faith before baptism. And so the scribe, when he's copying Acts, honestly thought that, that he was improving it when he incorporated what should be there. Uh, the same is true with the latter verses in Mark. Uh, I personally don't believe that those last few verses were in the original Mark, but yet I believe they were all uttered and said, and, and the scribe actually thought that he was improving the situation. And in the same way here, that you have, you have this body of information, but you still have some interpolation in various points, and you can, and you can see those kinds of things when it happened. And so I'm saying that, as, that you can take it and as a general rule say that this health code is perfect in the sense that, in other words, you couldn't have given their situation, no refrigeration, etc. You could not have lived in a healthier way than you have right here. But to ever convey to somebody that you have something here that is 100% perfect, and if it says you don't eat this animal, that you can actually show a scientific reason for not eating it at the present time and all, that would not be accurate. Because uh, there would be, there's a few things there that, uh, uh, for example, he, that uh, the, they were forbidden to eat the, the hair. See, the animal that was clean to them was uh, the cloven foot that was hoofed, that was split. And then he uh, chewed the cud and then regurgitated the cud, had several stomachs and all, to, and, and then that was the animal that was clean uh, to them to eat. Well, there were some of them like the hair that uh, gave the appearance of doing this outward physically, but they don't. And they got included, you know, on, on, on the list there. And so obviously you can, see a, you can see a principle that's true, but yet you can see an error in judgment on the writer in picking something that didn't meet up to that particular principle, you know. As a general rule, without any specifics, the best way to divide the clean and the unclean animals is the those that, that would eat other animals are those that would eat dead animals were unclean. Those that lived off the vegetation, as a general rule, you're talking about something that they would eat. And again, the interesting thing is that uh, we would still pursue that as a general rule today. In other words, if you find a society that's eating dogs or cats or animals that eat meat, you generally are looking at a society where, where starvation may be a problem. Like we talk about... Uh, uh, I've read about Korea and Japan and China and places like that where they would actually kill dogs and all that. But you're dealing with a society with a lot of hungry people. 
and and I can see. I know if I'm hungry, I'd eat a dog uh, before I'd starve. And uh, I think, and and I don't believe you'd stand condemned at all. And first of all, the health code had to do with what would be best for them from that stand from that standpoint. But as a general rule, society pursues uh, that that type of thing. The uh, swine. Uh, of course, the obvious, I think, on it, in the way that it eats and the things that it, that, it, that it does eat and all. And there again, though, that I think to pursue the health code in the way that, say, the Seventh-day Adventists do today by saying it would be sinful to eat swine meat or anything like that, I don't believe you could do that from this, that, uh, because that the, uh, the swine, as it's raised in our society for commercial use, can be just as clean as the people want it to be. And, and we know how to use it. And so I'm not a, I'm not a pork fan myself. In fact, I, eat, uh, I think as a society we eat too much meat, you know, that, uh, from the standpoint of the cholesterol. But it's interesting to me now that uh, in what I'm reading that they're uh, producing pork that's just as lean as anything else you can get. And, they're, and they're, they, they, so we've, we've come a long way from just having something that's natural and so that uh, uh, I think that the people in the pork industry will make a very good argument that they can put something out there that's just as nutritious and just as lean and has as little cholesterol as chicken or something like that. You know, and they're in the process of doing that and improving that all the time. So somebody that would go back to something that was given 1,500 years before Christ and was true for their situation and at that time would be making a mistake, I think, in bringing that forth today and trying to enforce it in, in that in that in that way. All right, in the uh, that eleventh chapter, uh, all of that dealt with the clean and the unclean animals. The uh, purification after childbirth. Uh, remember, any time they come in contact with death, they were considered unclean for a period of time. Uh, any time that there was an issue from their blood, and the thing about childbirth that you had the bleeding and the issue from the, the body. And so the, the woman, during the menstrual cycle, that during her period she was unclean uh, for that period of a week there. And then again, uh, in the same thing with birth. Now we can go back and look at that now. We can see this really was a protection of the woman. It was literally a protection of the woman from the standpoint of infection or anything of that nature. And we can see the sense in it. And when you go and look to societies that have not adhered to this, there's been, there's been problems. And when you have, a, in fact, uh, even today, there are health problems uh, that some people that are low educated and, and not very clean and all, there are health problems that they have that if they follow this right here, they just simply would not have. And again, so you can read it, you can see the sense to it and, and to appreciate it even more because they really didn't know anything about bacteria or diseases and everything in the sense that, that we do today. Uh, the infections and skin diseases, uh, one thing to keep in mind is that when you read leprosy in the Old Testament, it does not mean leprosy in the sense that we think of it. We think of it as this incurable skin disease. But leprosy in the Old Testament referred to any skin infection, any skin disease. And that's why that a person could have leprosy and, and then he could he was inspected over periods of time and then he could become clean and come among the, the people. But any skin disease was called leprosy. I remember as a young person reading that and thinking that man, they must leprosy was a real problem with these people, you know. But it, it wasn't anymore, you know, it was all their skin things. It's interesting again though that uh, in the curing of the problem and notice the emphasis is always unclean. Wash in running water, keep clean, keep away from others. And then really it was the defense of the body that was taking its toll. And it, 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 you know, it's interesting to me also that even today, the majority of our illnesses are whipped by the body and us, keep, uh, and us doing the right thing from a standpoint of cleanliness, you know, and, 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 and washing and keeping the wound or whatever clean. And the body is doing the healing for the most part. And even a lot of times when we uh, use uh, various medications that uh, we help out the body, and most of the time, though, that uh, the body would actually win the battle if this be over a prolonged period of time. We've got medications where we speed up the process, you know, and help, and help the body out. 
but the immune system is in most diseases what actually uh, fights and of course important in that is our own is our own cleanliness just like uh, my understanding of the cold or the flu uh, you know that when people say that take such and such for a cold or anything or the flu that's really not quite accurate that uh, there is nothing you can take to cure the cold or the flu uh, that you can take medication that will give you symptomatic relief while your body and just like people will go get uh, antibiotic shots, you know, it does abs any doctor will tell you today that it does absolutely nothing to a virus, but it's a placebo because people believe that it is. But the best you can do is rest and drink all kinds of fluids and, and let your body, and of course the medication, I'm not putting it down, the, a lot of the medication is, does give symptomatic relief and allows you to, you know, carry on, but it really it's your body that whips it. Um. This chewing the cud, does that just refer to like chewing the marine grass? They, for a long no, the cud meant that they had ate it and swallowed it and then had regurgitated it. Oh, really? And then they was chewing it again. And and uh, they have more than one stomach. So the rabbit does? Huh? The rabbit does. No, that's what I'm saying. It says that, the rabbit, though, it chews the cud does not have a split hook. Okay, but the rabbit, uh, that's one of the interesting things, that the rabbit does not. The rabbit, if you've ever seen a rabbit when it oh, eats... Oh, you're saying that's a mistake. Yeah, I'm saying that that is an, that is an example of the principle behind it being true. But, well, I'm saying it's an observation that uh, when you look at a rabbit from the outside, it looks like it's chewing the cud. Oh. It has the same outer motions and all. Uh, some, but it, it, it's just the way that it looks, and so by the rabbit being included, it showed that the that 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 who that that's obviously a man who has observed that, and they thought that it did, but some, we know now that it doesn't, you know, and so it, it just shows that you've got a principle there, and then somebody has taken this principle, and has observed the rabbit and thinks well he belongs there, and so you you've got him. And so you've got a case, and I'm saying that any time that kind of thing, it's always so insignificant that it doesn't really amount to anything. But you can see those times where somebody thought they was actually improving. And that's part of that half of 1%. Right. And, uh, and another thing to keep in mind, too, so far as people that would try to bring that in some detail uh, into Christianity, into other cultures and everything like that, the animals dealt with uh, are specifically are those animals in that part of the world. And that's it. Uh, there's any number of animals that are not even dealt with. They deal specifically with the animals in, in that part of the world, and that's, and that's it. Their, their knowledge of them, is, is, their whole knowledge of animals is limited to the animals in, in that part of the world. They had to have a split hoof and chew the cud, didn't they? Yeah. And the horse, does the horse not chew the cud, right? He has split hoof, right? But he doesn't cut. And then you have the... They don't have a split hoof. Does it not have a split hoof? No, he's got a solid. And the camel chews the cud, but it doesn't have a split hoof. The camel has little, I guess, uh, it has a ball back there, but then it has, like, toes or whatnot on it. But it doesn't, it doesn't have the split hoof. But the, um, there was a difference between, say, the Jews and the Arabs. The Arabs will eat the camel, and the Jews will, will not. But uh, but anyway, that that was from the Jew standpoint. It, it was both of that was involved. You think in chapter twelve it's it's got the purification times for a woman if she has a boy is eight days and if she has a girl it's two weeks. Do you think that's maybe another one of those instances? Uh huh. Uh, I was reading on that where the purification. See, first of all, the boy was circumcised on the eighth day, and then she was cleaning off. All right, again, in antiquity. Now, here's another interesting thing. When you read in antiquity, antiquity uh, is biased against the female. There's just no question about that. It's biased against her. And so, in antiquity, they thought that, uh, see, that what it had to do with the purification is the discharge of blood and water for a period of time from the woman after the birth. And uh, they believed that, that when a girl was born, that that discharge went on twice as long as when a boy, and that was just their, that was a common belief held among various peoples in antiquity, you know. Well, of course, that, that really is not, not the case. 
and, uh, and again you have and so you do see the bias against the, the female there uh, in fact I think you see it several times but yeah that's another example Mark of that that type of thing and I think uh, where this is really important to note as we go through here uh, when we talk about Christian evidences and the evidences for the inspiration of the Bible and if you're talking with learned and educated people the uh, you can come across as, as ignorant by not realizing some of these things in other words the average person is not going to hurt you you can just make statements get by with it because they don't know and even the average unbeliever he's really not that studied in the scriptures but you talk to somebody in some of these uh, theological seminaries who is just about you know an unbeliever in many areas he's well aware of these things and so that uh, the uh, a lot of times fundamentalist Christians who leave the impression that every single solitary word of the Bible was dictated you know and all that guy just brushes them aside like they're ignorant and they really don't know anything and you say well so what well he brushes up but the thing of it is you're not going to influence anybody if they brush you aside like that and so it's it's sort of like uh, I believe it's important it's like uh, using the English language you can speak uh, you know that uh, I work on mine and of course she helps me a whole lot on the, on the thing for our speaking but I have to watch myself in an area like this where the uh, language use is very loose and so you can uh, be grammatically inaccurate in, in speaking and nobody even notices and so it's very easy to be casual and all but you speak before an educated audience and, and if you're very grammatically inaccurate they'll just zero in on that and they don't even try to they just naturally do it because they've been so taught and schooled in English and all and and then they will almost classify you as uneducated or push you aside mentally based on that and so you got to be very careful with that audience and in the same way with this we after all our, our desire is to win these people and reach them that uh, that we need to make it clear that we're aware of these kind of things and that we say that, that we believe the Bible is inspired of God what we're saying is that yes Moses and Samuel and Isaiah and Malachi and and Luke and etc these men were inspired by God and they had gifts and God used them used them and all but the Bible's been transmitted down through the centuries and it's been handled by people who respected it and reverenced it and everything but they were human beings and and just as the best people do not perfectly live the 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 moral law there have been some mistakes that are trivial they do not affect the substance uh, they don't affect any doctrine or anything like that but there have been a few interpolations a few things left out a few things added along along the way they really don't amount to anything but they they show that they're they're there well that you don't hurt anything you don't take anything away from the evidence for the resurrection you don't take anything away from uh, the prophecy and its fulfillment or anything like that you know and what you do is you explain difficulties that people have and um, just like the thing that you, you notice there Mark that uh, if uh, you've taught somebody you've just converted somebody and you've told him that uh, this thing is inspired from the sense that you know every word there is that you know that is exactly way it dropped out of heaven or something and this guy goes through Leviticus and and he begins to look at it very carefully not just read it in a casual way he's going to pick up on some of these things and and he's going to realize well they think the hair chewed the cud but it don't chew the cud it just looks like it chews the cud and then you read that uh, about purification and you think one week for a male and two weeks for a female how could that be uh, that uh, the discharge and all would be different for a boy baby as it would be for a girl baby that uh, and you and then you go back and you read on it just like I did I go back and I read on it and I find out that this is a bias of antiquity that uh, that other in all the various cultures they had that belief that, that it was just the the uncleanness and all was longer if she had a girl it was it was not a scientific thing at all it was strictly it was strictly a result of their bias I think the the point of the whole thing that most people that misunderstand things like that they think that this is written to us right on down to right now 
and they forget that this was written that many thousand years ago to that particular group of people that he was writing to. Right. right. And we can read it and learn, learn from, from it. There's learn. eternal truths there, but right. we still need to understand that it was written to that people in that time frame. Right. Sure, and just like on the health code, we can appreciate the wisdom in it, and we can see that how superior that what Moses has to the mm -hmm. others, you know, and everything like that. But by the same token, we can also look at it and see that this is a society that with absolutely no refrigeration, no ice, no knowledge of bacteria, and, and there's just a, you couldn't take that with, a, in other words, that there are things that we can definitely eat and eat it with proven uh, no ability to harm your body and all, that they could not right. at, at this particular time. There's, there's different types of things that we could do that they simply could not do at this time. A lot of people come about it there. Well, if it's not written to us now, why study? But yet the lessons are there, and your faith really grows when you see how, when the people obey God, everything went well for them, and he blessed them, and mm -hmm. when, he, when they did well, things didn't go well. Even the history itself, you have to have the, uh, you just can't. Uh, I don't know, I, I used to always thought it was humorous. I don't mean that in the wrong way, but over at Collins, when they make statements like, Otto knows the New Testament, and Ponce knows the Old Testament. And I'm thinking that's crazy. You cannot know the New Testament without the Old Testament. You know, you just can't. You, you, you just cannot because it's written with the understanding that you read all of this, you know. It, it's like saying that a, that a person today, as a result of watching the, the uh, TV station every day, has come to really understand the situation between the Jew and the, and the Arabs over there. There is no way you can understand that without reading history. Right. You just can't. You, there, is a, there is a specific reason going back into the history as to why the Jews believe that land belongs to them. And you've got to go all the way back to Moses to find it. Mm -hmm. And there's a specific reason why the Arabs believe it belongs to them. And you've got to go back in history to find, find that. And so that there's no way you can understand that conflict without going back and doing it in history. And there's no way that a multitude of things are going to be understood in the New Testament without, you know, having the foundation and all. Uh, in the uh, next, the chapters from that point on up through the uh, the uh, 14th chapter again, you're still cleansing from infections and skin diseases. Uh, the principle of washing and running water, being clean, washing their houses. Uh, chapter 15 deals with discharges from the body and cleanliness. Uh, in the 16th chapter, on the Day of Atonement, an interesting concept. Uh, in verse 20, uh, let's see, uh, Barbara, read that verse 20 through uh, 22. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebe rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. Okay, so our concept of a scapegoat goes right here. Again... Take yourself back at that time. They have no full understanding. And, and they take this goat, and the priest lays hands on him. And then he wanders out in the wilderness and bears the sins of the people away. No understanding. And yet what a perfect picture that is of Christ later on that will be the scapegoat for man. And then you can see how he's using this to prepare their minds for the fact that you've repented of your sins. So what? That's good. But they're still there, and they've got to be atoned for. And the concept that God is getting across all the way through here is repentance in and of itself is not enough. There has to be atonement. And the interesting thing is, and, and the Hebrew writer and the Apostle Paul have a field day with this in the New Testament, of all people that ought to have been able to identify with the sacrifice of Jesus, it should have been the Jew. And because he had been schooled to realize that repentance was not good enough. And that's why when the Hebrew writer... Uh, makes a statement like the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, you know, and then there was the need for, for Jesus and all. 
that it's almost uh, in mockery in the sense that, that anybody could think that the blood of bulls and goats could take away the sins. But that's what he's saying, that they believe that. that, that and so what was the means to an end became an end within, it, within itself. But again, the concept of the Messiah uh, developed right here. They had no full understanding. And yet, when they, in faith, turn that goat loose and their sins out, uh, they were forgiven. And eventually, when Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, his blood would take care of these people who, by faith, appropriated that through all of these types and symbols all through the, all through the centuries. In chapter 17, the eating of blood was forbidden to them because of the life of the flesh was in the blood. And again, when he makes that statement, the life of the flesh in the blood, verse 11, the life of the creatures in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Again, a concept unique to Israel. I don't know of any other society that, that taught that or realized it, and up until recent years that uh, doctors even bled people thinking they were helping them out. And of course we know now the life of the flesh is in the blood. In the 18th chapter, he deals with uh, different types of sexual relations. All of these uh, relations he deals with here are relations that are being practiced by the people that are in the land that they're going. And, uh, and look at verse 3. You must not do as they do in Egypt. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. And then he goes ahead and tells them, to, verse 5, to keep my decrees and laws. And then they were not to have sex with a close relative. Verse 6, uh, he deals with son, daughter, etc. through those verses. Uh, in verse 22, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. Uh, that's detestable. And then verse 23, do not have sexual relations with an animal. Uh, and a woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. Again, the other countries all did these things. And so again, we get into something unique about the law of Moses. But here he comes forth with a moral uh, superiority to everything around him because all of the other countries around them do these various things. And then the Jews are taught that this is perversion and wrong. The interesting thing is, again, that we can only speculate as to how many diseases have been brought into the human family as a result of the sins committed, you know, back here. But And keep in mind that just like us, all of us go back to that. I mean, all of us that go back uh, in our forefathers where they committed incest, they had relations with animals, and it went on for generations. And, and we can only guess at how many weird diseases of the liver or the kidneys or the heart or, or, or our minds or anything that have been affected, you know, by this kind of thing. And we do know that the, the various sexual, I don't, without exception, I don't believe, to, my, to the best of my knowledge, I don't believe there's any exceptions to this, all sexual diseases go back to the misuse and abuse of our sexuality, that if we used our sexuality in the way that is set forth in the Bible, we would not have syphilis, we wouldn't have gonorrhea, we wouldn't have the, the herpes, we wouldn't have the, uh, the uh, of course, the thing with AIDS, and some of the other, uh, by the, uh, some of the other in the process. But all of it goes back, in fact, again, based on what I've read, that a number of these things originated in with the practice of beastology and then was brought into the the human family from that from that point on of course there's no better example of that i don't think than aids which started with animals and come to the homosexuals and and now more and more it's working itself into the into the heterosexual realm chapter 19 after giving them the various laws he tells them in verse 1 and 2 to be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Yes, he gives the various things they are not, what not to do. Verse 15 is interesting to me because when he's talking about to not pervert justice, 
He says not only to not show favoritism to the great, but don't show it to the poor either. Yeah. Partiality to the poor. And I think, like, one that can see that in our society today with the colored people, it's like some people favor them because it's like they were mistreated for so long. And now if you're black and you get a job, whether you're qualified or not. So, you know, you can see where you can show favoritism yeah. either way. Oh, there's no question in our society. And, and man, I am... Anybody knows me, I have, I'm as colorblind as anybody can be, and have always been for the equal rights and all. But on the average job out here, I'd say it's more difficult to fire a black than it is a white. If I, if I had a black teacher, I'd have a far greater risk of being sued or something by trying to get rid of the black one than a white Well, a good example of that is Jackson, Jesse Jackson. He did the very same type things that Hart did, but yet Hart was all written up about it. Yeah. They didn't touch him. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's the perfect fairness that uh, don't favor the rich over the poor, but also that don't show partiality to somebody just simply because they're poor either. Uh, 17 and 18, I think, is good. Do not <clears throat> hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share his guilt. And do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> the tendency is that uh, when somebody is wronging you, just to allow that wrong to build up, and I don't believe, if somebody wrongs you over a prolonged period of time, and you just keep taking it and taking it and taking it, I think you're gonna wind up hating that person. I just don't, you know, it'd be pretty difficult not to. And so what he says, don't hate your brother in your heart, but rather rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in his guilt. And so. If if somebody keeps sinning against me, and I don't, and I just wind up hating him, then he's causing me to sin. And so what it tells you to do is, somebody sinned against you, you rebuke that individual, and and don't allow that hatred to build up in your heart. And uh, you know Jesus said in Luke 17, if your brother sinned against you, then rebuke him. If he repents, then you forgive him. And this is something that is, uh, we was watching one of those talk shows the other day, and they had on uh, people who had forgiven tragic crimes, criminals, like uh, murder and rape and things like that, and others who had not. And of course they tried to put it forth that this was the great and the benevolent thing to do, was to forgive, and the other was doing the wrong thing if they didn't, you know. And uh, I, I believe that uh, one lady there that, uh, she had been stabbed and somebody else in her family killed. Her daughter. And, uh, yeah. Raped and killed right in front of her. Right, and she said she could not forgive that person who was like, and she said she had gone to pray, she had gone to ministers and said all the ministers ever told her is that you have to forgive him, you know. And, and that was it, and others ever saying the same thing. And I thought it bothered me because obviously she's a religious person, she's been wrong, and she's been taught the wrong thing. That, you do not forgive people who don't repent. And, and I don't know any better way to show it than the fact that God loves everybody, but he absolutely does not forgive until we repent. And what the Bible teaches, it, when, when somebody sins against you, you rebuke that sin if they repent. Uh, then when Jesus was on the cross, and they quoted this, you know, that he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But God didn't forgive them. On the day of Pentecost, Peter condemned every one of them as being murderers, Peter and the Apostle. And then, after they were convinced that they had crucified their Messiah, they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then he told them to repent and be baptized. So that God forgave them, but he forgave them after the Apostles confronted them with their sin, and then only those Jews that repented were, were forgiven. And so it's, uh, we're maybe running people off by demanding the impossible. When you tell somebody that has been raped or or somebody in their family really seriously hurt, and we just say, well, you just forgive that person, and that's not so. That you can love that person in the agape sense, where you want what is best for them, but to forgive somebody means to release them from that wrong, and, and if you're releasing them for a wrong they won't repent of, then you're doing something God won't do, because he, uh, he doesn't do it himself. In fact, that's the argument the liberal gives one of them against the death penalty, you know, that, well, if you're a Christian, you forgive. That's just, they, they misuse that. Uh, 
in the 20th chapter gives various uh, punishments for sin. Uh, interesting here, I'll show you the difference. Uh, Okay, I couldn't. Uh, uh, in verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Uh, verse 12, if a man sleeps with his daughter and all, both of them must be put to death. Verse 13, if a man lies with a man, as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, they must be put to death. And then the man and his sexual relations with an animal, verse 15, same thing. And the woman, same thing in verse 16. Uh, what I was looking for is where he dealt with uh, where somebody uh, was having relations that was not married, but neither was married. You know, neither one of them were married. I thought I had that marked uh, in Maybe there. Maybe it doesn't cover that here in this area. Well, anyway, I'll just give you what it is. That, that there was adultery was when you had relations with a married person. And for two people that are having relations where they were not married, you know, it was condemned, but they were not stoned or put to death. The command was that they marry. And so if they called two people having relations that were not married, then the law simply demanded that they marry. But it, it definitely made a distinction there between that and somebody having relations with somebody, somebody else's wife. Verse 31, 32 of 19 condemns the mediums and the spiritualists. Yeah. By the way, when they condemn the mediums and the spiritualists and the astrologers, well, you can imagine how it was then. Look at today with all our education and how many people in our society believe in that kind of thing. And you can see how enlightened this was 1,500 years before Christ. And here he's condemning this whole thing of the, of the mediums and the astrologers and the, the, all of this thing of believing that they could communicate with the dead and things of that nature but the Jews in condemning this were unique in other words there was absolutely no other religious group that uh, did this kind of thing in fact to show you how superior this teaching is in Moses that you've all heard of I think Pythagoras a great Greek philosopher and uh, Pythagoras uh, believed that you know that you had a soul and and that uh, depending on how you live, that your soul would then pass on into an animal or into a vegetable or into a tree. And uh, all of this was determined by how you live in, in this life. And that the, the most learned great people had concepts that were just pretty way out, you know. And when you read what you have here and realize that's 1,500 years before Christ and how, you know, that when, when Moses is writing this kind of thing, he's unique that there's no other, no other group that has it. They all have the spiritualists and the mediums and the astrologers. And even in our society today, we have people that honestly believe that, that certain things are written in the stars, as they say. You know, they're going, going to happen in that way. Even the psychics, those that would believe in the psychics, same thing. Okay, the 21st chapter... Uh, all of this deals with the priest. He was a type of Christ. He could not have any defect on him. Uh, see in verse 17, the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer food of God. Uh, no man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind, lame, disfigured, deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand or who is hunchbacked, or dwarfed, etc. The priest was a type of Christ, the high priest especially. And therefore, he could not have any defect whatsoever. He had to be blameless. All right. It also explains that when, before he went up to offer the sacrifice, 
He had to wash himself spotlessly clean. Every time he touched anything, he was washing his hands. There was those constant baptisms and immersions and that, uh, washings that they went through. All of this was figuratively symbolizing to them the ugliness of sin. In other words, he was the difference between the priest and the prophet. The prophet ministered from God to the people. The priest ministered from the people to God. He was the in-between. Jesus would be both prophet and priest. And so the priest was meticulously clean and constantly had to go through these washings. And the symbolism dealt with the fact that, that man was separated because of sin. He had to be cleansed. And so what happened physically there was going to happen spiritually with man. The sacrifice is the same. I thought I put that so it, it did turn. Okay, I thought I put it so it did. Yeah, verse 22 on chapter 22. Do not offer the Lord the blind, the injured, etc. And of course, in Malachi, that's the very thing they were condemned for, was offering the blind and the lame to, among the animals. But it was to be the very best they had. And then also it, it pictured the Messiah. Another thing it, that uh, I think is interesting we, you know, it doesn't really matter that much, except we try to pick up as much as we can about Jesus and his appearance and things like that. And obviously, that uh, the priest uh, had to be without blemish and a perfect specimen and everything, then I think you'd, that Jesus would have had to fit that bill. In other words, before the Jew would have accepted him as their high priest, if anybody could have pointed and say, hey, he's hunchback or he had blemishes or, or whatever, that would have been an evidence against him, so that he would have had to have been physically a perfect specimen from a human standpoint to, to meet the criteria there. I think that's interesting in Malachi when he says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor and no. see if he'll be pleased. Of course, it showed their attitude towards God. Yeah. All right, in the 23rd chapter, he gets into the appointed feast. Uh, there was three times when they, every devout Jew that could come back to Jerusalem. The Passover was one, and when he uh, look at the Feast of Weeks in verse 15, from the day you, from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheep to the wave, uh, the wave offering. Count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days, and then this was the, the Feast of Weeks, uh, celebrating their gathering and all of all their food and their harvesting the crop. Um, this was Pentecost. Pentecost is a Greek name, 50 days. And so we can see that God has providentially set up his two great events. That at the Passover, when Jesus is crucified, as a result of this injunction in the law of Moses, Jews, wherever they had been scattered all over the face of the earth, everyone that could would be home. So when Jesus was crucified, there were Jews from all over the Roman world that was in Jerusalem at that time. In the same way, uh, they were there when they talked about the empty tomb and had all the commotion and everything. And then on Pentecost, the birth of the church, of course, when Peter addresses the audience, he enumerates on all the places there. But again, we can see how that God has set it up to preach the gospel in one generation to the entire known world. That Jews would be there from all over the civilized world on Pentecost and the Passover. And then after the conversion of those thousands, they would go back home and they would take that message every place they, every place they went. Uh, over here, the 25th chapter, the next thing, the year of Jubilee. Uh, they would have seven Sabbaths of years, and then the 50th year, and then there was a release. All land resorted back to the original ownership. All slaves, everything went free, but land went back so that God has a built-in program that protected what would eventually happen. In other words, over a period of time, in fact, given 100% pure capitalism uh, with no socialism whatsoever, and over a period of time, you're going to have a few people that control everything. And, 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 that's, and that's what would have happened over a period of time. There are going to be some people that lose out, that make bad judgment, and as a result, their children suffer the consequences. 
So God has a built-in protection that every 50 years, everything reverts back to the original family, and we start the whole process over again. And so you actually have built-in protection against that kind of thing. In fact, uh, even our own society, although I'm a, uh, obviously believe as a general rule, capitalism, yet I, I, I don't, we, in our society, we really have socialism. And, and I'm not criticizing it. There's the public school system is socialistic. The, the post office is socialistic. The welfare programs are socialistic. But we have built-in protection uh, that if you didn't have that thing, you over a period of time, you would have a fewer and fewer and fewer people that would be up there owning everything. Be who? Do the Jews still practice the year of Jubilee today? Well, see now, I don't... Their land, first of all, they don't have all of the land in the way they had it. And uh, they, they don't have their, the names. I don't see how they could. Because that, uh, okay. for example, the Jew ever since 70 AD has not been able to offer sacrifices and worship according to the law of Moses because the, the only person that could offer an animal was a Levite. Absolutely, the only one. Who's the Levite? So there is absolutely no Jew today that could trace his lineage to any one of those tribes. It just And see, remember, the tribes split uh, in about 722 when uh, 10 of them are conquered by the Assyrians and become the 10 lost tribes of Israel. And from a standpoint of being able to trace them, those people, they're lost to history. And then where they picked up the name Jews is that uh, when Babylon come in and conquered them, and, and what they were really conquering was Judah and Benjamin. And in Babylon, all they talked about was uh, going home to Judah, and so they started calling them Jews. And so really, the Israelites today uh, go back to Judah. And just that, basically, that, that, that one tribe, you know, as far as being able to trace anything. But so far as any Jew at all being able to trace anything in a concrete way, that ended with the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's interesting the way God did that. He literally destroyed the system. Uh, there can be no, uh, that when Christ comes on the scene and then he has already programmed the situation so that only the Levite can offer the sacrifice. And not only that, their worship with the sacrifice can only take place at the temple. And so when God destroyed the temple and destroyed all the records, he literally wiped out fleshly Israel for all practical purposes. Well, do they not make any attempt to, to conform to this system at all? Yeah, they don't offer sacrifices now. They can't. Uh, they don't have the temple worship. There's no temple. And so what they're looking forward to, I'm talking about the Orthodox conservative Jew, is for the Messiah to come and to restore and rebuild the temple and then to get this all straight. Now, how they think he's going to get it straight from the names of the tribes and everything, uh, I don't know, unless it's going to be through uh, something divine, you know, that uh, divine inspiration that he would get it. But uh, now they meet and they they sing and they pray and they study the scriptures and they have preaching. And that that's and then they have certain days like they still keep the Sabbath. And then they certain days that are reminders of things that happened in their history. The Passover they still keep the Passover, you know, but they don't offer the animal. They can't. There's no, no Levite. Their worship is very they similar. Like they they were still in captivity or something. They're, yeah. They're away from Jerusalem or somewhere, and they can't get back to that temple, and that's the way they did when they was in captivity in Babylon or something. Right. They're just about the same as yeah. in, in their Babylonian captivity. And that's why that the Jew, it is so important to him today to take that city, to hold onto that land and that temple area and everything like that. His, everything revolves around that. That's why that they'll... I guess they would flat die right to the last one over there holding on to that. And then, of course, you've got the Muslims with a Muslim mosque there. They feel exactly. It's interesting to me because there is no way that that difference can ever be settled between the Jew and the Arab. They can't because you're dealing with two people who each are 100% convinced they're in the right. There's no, there's no room for the other. There's only one thing that can change that, and that's the conversion of Christianity. You're welcome. That's that's the only thing that can change it. Uh, 
in the uh, 26th chapter, after giving them all of these uh, laws and regulations, he said in verse 3, If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey, you will get your rain in its season. Verse 6, uh, I'll grant peace on the land. Verse 9, I'll look on you with favor. But then verse 14, If you will not listen to me and carry out these commands. Verse 16, I'll do this to you. And then he begins to tell them the diseases and all the various, the pestilence, the lack of rain, and then eventually countries that would come in and defeat them. To read the history of Israel that will unfold is to read this over and over again. Uh, anytime they had a king on the throne who reverenced and respected the law of Moses and, and it was taught, then they were blessed as a people. Uh, whenever they deviate from it, they begin to suffer consequences and God tries to get them to repent in some way short of total conquering uh, but if uh, nothing else works, then he allows that to happen also. Then when they're down and they're out and they're conquered and they're a beaten people, they repent. God forgives them. They begin to be blessed and prospered again. It just happens over and over and over. Okay, that finishes out Leviticus. Anybody, uh, Mark, or anything here that, uh, that we skipped over that you want to bring out? Did you ever think to look that, you were going to look at a commentary and see what they said about that? Remember, I asked you about it on, at the end of Leviticus, where he talks about if you don't pay your time, then I, I assume if it's to where you need it for whatever. Oh, okay. If you can't that pay at? your time, then when you do get around to paying it, you got to pay a, a, a fifth more. I guess that'd be 20% interest. 30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man redeems if any, of his, any of his tithe, he okay, must add yeah. a fifth to the value yeah, of it. Yeah, he could. He could uh, hold back a part of the tithe. In other words, his situation might be such that he couldn't right then. And he could hold back a part of it, but then he had the to add the fifth, he must add a fifth of the value to it when he did go ahead and pay it. Well, what what was the tithe used for? Was it given to the Levites? All right, it was, all used, to support. it was used to support the Levites, that was one. But then it was also used uh, in benevolence. It was used both ways. But then in addition to the tithe, uh, they, had, they, they could not glean their fields. They could only reap it, and then it was left for the poor people, or they couldn't reap the corners, and that was for the poor people. But the tithing, and see the temple now, and the tabernacle was built with free will offerings over and above the tithe. Okay. But the tithe went primarily to the Levite. That was the Levite's part. And see, the Levite uh, has been set aside in, in all of their work. They were, uh, can you imagine the work that was involved in killing those thousands of animals? Keep in mind that all of these Jews offer sacrifices. And so that uh, the, and by the way, that all that spelled out, you know, some of that we skipped over, we'll get into some of it in numbers. But here you are, several million people. And, and nobody can, can, only the priests can offer. And so every Jew that offered a turtle dove or any of those animals, he had to bring it to the priest. And the priest had to slay it. But can you imagine the thousands of priests that it took to handle all these animals and to slay them and to cut them up just right and, and then to cut off the portion that they could eat and to burn up the fat and discard the sprinkle the blood and everything like that. Well, then see the priest, in addition to that, the priest had to, when they had the tabernacle, every place they moved, they had to set the whole thing up. It was like a circus tent, you know. They set mm -hmm. the whole thing up. And then when they got the temple, the priest did everything about keeping the temple clean and all that was involved in collecting the free will offerings and things like that. And so you've got all the sacrifices all involved in the temple. Well, then the teaching was done by the priest too that they were the students and it, they had to be 30 years of age and they began teaching. So this whole nation of people has been set aside by God for that reason. Well, then that tithe belonged to them. And it, it was set aside, you know, for that, for that reason. Well, the sacrifices that were given, a lot of, a lot of that was to be eaten by the, the Levites also, uh -huh. right? 
Right. And they offered, they said something about the fat. Some of it, the, the people would eat. In other words, some of the sacrifices, like you offered a sacrifice, there was a certain portion of that that you and your family consumed. Okay. And uh, like the Passover. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, if you didn't have enough family to eat the entire lamb, then two families could go in together and they would eat that lamb. And then with the sacrifices, there were certain parts that went to the priest. That was his portion of the sacrifice itself. And then the priest now, we get into this too, the priest had to give a tithe. That they tithed and all, but then out of what they gave him, he tithed. And so their giving was a, a tithing of everything that belonged to God, and then they had free will offerings over and above that. That was their, that was their giving. Well, was the, was the purpose of the tithe, it seems like a lot of it was just to support the Levites. I it mean, was. That was it. That was mostly it. So, that was a whole, see you've got, uh, you've got uh, 12, you've got a whole tribe here. The 12th of the people. Right. That have got, and, and then, uh, well you got the 12 tribes, and then you would have the Levites. Really, okay. if you want to be exact, right. it's 13 tribes, but one of them is scattered among okay. the 12. Because Joseph was given a double portion. Right. Uh, but still, you can see that with the 12, it would take almost a tenth just to support this other group. But then some of it went to benevolence too. They, they had a certain, in other words, they had a certain <coughs> amount that was there for that, for that purpose. Well, the duties that the priests carried out were not all just religious, were they? I mean, they, a lot of the stuff about the, uh, the, oh, the, the, the cleanliness, cleanliness right. the, the checking people with the, the right. sores and all, it was almost like they had a medical yeah. response. They were, too. they had all kinds of, they were ministers to the people in all of those areas, and they had, they had that responsibility. And that's why, too, that in the New Testament, when Peter tells the Christians that they are a holy priesthood, uh, that Jew could really identify with that, because that... In other words, the Levites were a type uh, of the Christians called a priest in, in, the, in the New Testament. And, they were, and so when he said you were a, holy, a royal priesthood and a holy nation and everything, well, man, the Jewish Christian could really identify with that from the way it was over here. But the Levite was really, the, just as the high priest was a type of Christ, the Levitical priesthood was a type of the Christian in the New Testament. For example, when they went into battle, like in the next book, Numbers, we get them going into battle to take Canaan. But the Levite could not be numbered for war because he had been set apart for spiritual and holy uses and that he, therefore, he could not be numbered for war. Well, I have a, a lot of trouble understanding all the significance of the, of the sacrifices and, and the the, just the methodology of what they had to go through all the time. Like you talk about the thousands and thousands of animals. What was that supposed to impress upon those? Okay. The, what all the sacrifices continually impressed, God is constantly conveying to them, you're going to die and you're separated from God because of sin. And your sin is going to have to be atoned. And it, it, every time they offered a sacrifice, it simply pointed the way to the Messiah to come, but it pressed on their mind constantly that that sin was a big thing to God, and that it, you were absolutely, just like when the uh, in the in the temple in the tabernacle, you've got the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, but between the Ark of the Covenant and the people, you've got this veil, and 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 only the high priest could go back there to offer that sacrifice. Nobody else could go. Only the high priest. Well, then you can see again how that's in when Jesus is crucified, and then after his death, you've got the the veil of the temple rent in two, symbolizing that man now had access to God, that the high priest was gone back. Well, the Jew could relate to that perfectly, as, you know, as far as that event happening and all, all that was involved in it. But every bit of it was intended to to you cannot you cannot deal with an abstract thought in your mind unless there's first a concrete thing. And you have just like, we think of one-fourth and have no problem, but you say one-fourth of something to a third grader, he does not know what you're talking about. You get up there and draw a pie and divide it in four parts and say that 
the four on the bottom tells you how many parts it's divided into, and the one or the two or the three or the four on the top lets you know how many of them you've got. Well, now from that point on, he can understand that, but he had to first have that. We all start with that pie or that concrete experience. Well, in the same way, Paul in Galatians refers to the law as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, and that everything about it was preparing man's mind for the Messiah to come. Let's say, let's skip the law of Moses. And what if Jesus came and he was crucified? You know, then how do you go about when people have no background whatsoever of trying to convey the fact that he is a sacrifice, an atonement for your sins? And and keep in mind when he when it finally came about in the in the in the New Testament time, the church went for uh, well about eight years. And there was no Gentiles at all in it. In other words, the church was, was well established before the first Gentile. And they had been well schooled and, and brought up on those concepts, and then they would just assimilate the Gentile in with them. You think that's one of the problems that we have today, that people have a hard time understanding or, or realizing what that sacrifice was and what it meant? Yeah. I believe that uh, we're going to have a harder time uh, today in, when I was young, and see here I'll be 49, most people had a, a certain amount of contact with the Bible. And, and uh, there was, uh, just like my mother, I, I wasn't, uh, my grandfather took me to church. My mother didn't go to church when I was small. But I was reading the Bible daily. That uh, The first book I was ever read was the Bible. The first storybook I ever was ever read was Hilbert's story of the Bible. Well, I wasn't unique in that. There were others the same way, you know. And so that people had this concept of sin and atonement and things built into their mind. And we're raising a generation out there that is not, and I think it's going to be far more difficult, but it'll be just like with the Gentiles. That's why that a lot of the sermons that may have been good a generation ago are just falling on deaf ears. I think that uh, when uh, Jimmy swaggered, or anybody like him. I mean, forget about the sin and everything. When he gets up there and preaches the gospel like he does in his church, the only person he can possibly reach is, is somebody that is already has a certain background. You know, now that he's not, uh, the others are not even paying attention to him. You know, it's just, there's, there's, no, there's no way that we're going to have to start with people where they're at, you know, and teach all that.